Hey, would you turn to John chapter 20? John chapter 20. There's a little book in front of you. The, the little one is a Bible. It's in the second half of that book. It's on page 90. We're going to be finishing some of the story that we looked at last week in John chapter 20. I love what Pastor Kathy said that Easter was not the end. It wasn't just a happy ending. It is, in fact, a new beginning. And we need Easter every single day. We need to be reminded that Jesus is alive. We are alive in him. But tonight we're going to see that we are alive because we believe. And tonight we're going to see that we believe even though we haven't seen, right? I'm going to make an assumption here that none of you have been to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago to see the empty tomb in which Jesus was laid. I'm going to make another assumption that you've never seen Jesus face to face the way we're going to see tonight in this story. But we still are gathered here bearing witness to a risen Savior who changed everything. That's what we're going to be looking at here in just a moment. But first I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine that reached out to me several years ago because he had grown up in the church and he had recently left the church. And so we gather at a witch witch in Richardson and we're sitting on the patio And he is ready to tell me his journey from belief to unbelief, okay? So he is unpacking his story, and I'll just tell you that there's a multitude of reasons why, but it kind of boiled down to at least this one thing. He told me that the beliefs he had grown up with could no longer hold up to the complexity and reality of the doubt and the fear and the struggle that he was facing at that point in his life. Now, let's be real. When we are faced with our own doubt and fear and struggle, sometimes the things that we hold to be true get put up to the complexity and reality that it's that's imposing itself on us. Last week we looked at two stories of Jesus meeting women at tombs right there on death's door and saying incredible things like, I'm the resurrection and the life. Well, do you really believe it? In the hospital room? Do you really believe it? In those dark, terrible nights? He was bearing his soul and telling me he was at this point in his life where the well-meaning Christian bumper stickers that he had inherited just weren't cutting it. Now, I met with several people before and after, dear, dear friends of mine, that have faced similar periods of doubt, and they've actually, because of this, come out stronger. Many of them still are in that season after many, many years. But this friend, several years ago, was sharing with me his journey. And with these other people, usually now I'd like to think that I'm a little more seasoned and I just listen and I ask questions. But y'all, on this witch witch patio, I was so ready to throw it down. And I was so ready to dismantle every single one of his doubts. Point by point, I was like, eager and chomping at the bit, trying to be patient and listen. Y'all been with that friend that's just like, you're just waiting for me to shut up so you can say something? I was that friend at Witch Witch. I was ready to get this boy on his knees and get him saved, glory, hallelujah. I was ready. And so I launch into this. 
And I say these beautiful things about what if I told you that there's so much complexity even within the house of faith. That there's room at the table with Jesus even if you think differently about this or that or the other. And what if I told you that there is a kingdom that is bigger than America and everything you see here. And it's about justice and beauty and it matters now, not just then. And I'm ready for him to just go, yes, I believe. At which, which. And it didn't happen in that moment. We're going to talk a little bit later about how we do or how I think I've learned to walk with some of these friends of mine. But in that moment, I will never forget what he said next. He listened patiently, he listened graciously, and he said these words, and I'll never forget it. He said, that is all really nice. But it all hinges on whether or not you believe that Jesus of Nazareth really did rise from the dead. And I looked about like this. Because in my head, I was like, whoa, he's right. St. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, says as much. He says, if Jesus Christ was not risen from the dead, then we are above all people in this world to be most pitied. We're the people that people walk past with these big banners that say, he is risen. And people go, yeah, but is he? No, you guys are delusional. He says, if Jesus isn't risen, we've got to rethink our whole life. But for those of us who do believe, even though we've not seen, we say, no, 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 because he's risen, you have to rethink your whole life. That's the brass tacks. And even though many scholars in the last 50 to 100 years say, yeah, but I don't think he really did because guess what? Dead people don't rise. And these were simpletons that, you know, thought that maybe he was resuscitated. No, no, no. They were just as surprised as anyone else, these followers and writers of the New Testament. So it is not some mass hallucination we're about to see. It is not some mass conspiracy that they launched. It is a mass of people whose lives have been transformed by the risen king because of what happened, and it surprised them. And what we're going to see tonight, hopefully, is this. The risen Jesus surprises us in our struggle. Even when we're struggling, even in the midst of death and darkness, like we talked about last week. The two things I want you to see tonight are this. The risen Jesus will surprise us even in our struggle. This is on the slides here too. And the second thing is that the risen Jesus sends us in his spirit. Let me show you in John chapter 20, if you're turned there with me. It's going to be on the screen. We're going to pick up the story from last week in verse 19. Y'all with me? So this is the evening after Mary sees Jesus, and the disciples had seen the empty tomb, but they hadn't seen Jesus. So Mary goes and says, yo, I really saw Jesus. This is what happens the evening of the very first Easter. Y'all with me? On the evening of that first day of the week... When the disciples were together, with the doors locked, why? For fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. 
And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. We're going to come back to that at the end of our time. Now in verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, gross, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. This is next Sunday. And Thomas was with them this time. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them again. And he said, peace be with you. But then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Point for point, what Thomas had said, right? Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is the Word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. If you were to go back through that passage we just read and count it up all the times we saw the word see and the word believe, or some variation of it, you would catch those two words a dozen times. Now, Thomas didn't just want to see. He wanted to touch. He wanted to verify. He wanted to know. But he had to see and touch to believe. So what about us who haven't seen? And how many of us believe Jesus is Lord and know that we have life Even though, as I said earlier, you've never seen an empty tomb or seen Jesus face to face who showed up in your locked room and freaked you out. There is something about this risen Jesus. And he says that Thomas, when he eventually believes, it's because he saw it. And he said, yes. But he said, but blessed are those who believe and yet haven't seen. John, we just read, it's there on the screen still wrote his whole gospel in order that we could see and hear without really seeing and hearing. You with me? Because if we would catch a glimpse and a vision and give our lives to this, his word believe, we would have what? We would have life. I want you to know this. In John's gospel, there's an unavoidable connection between seeing and believing. You see it throughout the whole story. In one encounter after another, people are left with this choice to see Jesus for who he is or not. 
It's the same as when Jesus walked face to face with this crowd and his disciples and Thomas as it is with my friend on the patio of Witch Witch in Richardson. Do we believe Jesus is who he says he is? At the very beginning of John's gospel, he says in chapter 1, verse 12, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He goes on in that prologue in John chapter 1, and he lays all his cards out on the table. Before Jesus is speaking with anyone, John is writing this down for those who would hear later on. He says this in John chapter 1, verse 14. He says that the Word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I love the message translation we quote in this church a lot. The message translation is a contemporary paraphrase of the New Testament and Old Testament. And he said, the word become flesh and blood and what? Moved into the neighborhood. God was some abstraction for so many. But in Jesus, he has made him known. This is what he says. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of what? Grace and truth. He goes on, verse 18 of chapter 1. I know I'm throwing out a lot of scripture for you guys. But he says, nobody's ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him what? Known. But we still haven't seen him, right? But because Jesus is alive, we can believe, we can know him in some way. Let's go back and jump into our story in John chapter 20. Jesus surprises his disciples. And I believe that Jesus can surprise us even in the midst of our struggle. How many of you have been surprised by some good news that could only come from God when things were really difficult? Can I see a show of hands? Can you point to something in the last year where you said this was so unexpected, it had to be God, and thank you, Lord, for it. How about the last six months? Can y'all think of something? How about six weeks? Right. Some check in the mail or something that hit your account when you needed it. Some fever that broke when you were praying and praying your pants off for that little one. How about that medical test that came back clear, or just something where you said, this was a complete surprise, but thank you for it. I remember a season in which I was mad at Jesus. I was a Thomas who had seen all these great things, but I was really doubting as to whether or not he was alive. Like Thomas, I had all these disciples around me saying, no, 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 I promise you, I promise you, I promise you. Think, look at this, look at this, look at this. But I was like Thomas, I was like my friend, and I said, yeah, I'm not so sure. And I've told this story a time or two in this church before. I'm going to tell you a shortened version of it. I was in Southern California, shout out John Nichols, and I was in a locked room. So I couldn't help but think of this when I was looking through this story of Jesus surprising his disciples. 
I was mad at Jesus. I was burned out. I was frustrated. I thought of Jesus like some boss that was a bummer to work for. I thought of the Father like some grumpy taskmaster like I'd see in some Far Side cartoon. And then, y'all, y'all know Far Side still? It's pretty excellent. And I thought of the Holy Spirit as some, somebody that was just out to lunch. Because I could not relate to all these Christians in my life, not unlike Thomas and his buddies, saying, No, no, look! And I was like, yeah, no. And I was sitting there, and I was frustrated, and I had nothing else to do for five hours because they designed this dumb retreat to go be alone with Jesus. I didn't want to be with Jesus. And I'm in this locked room. And then this word jumps out of the pages of Scripture that I had thrown open, and it was this loving word from the Father And then I get this kind of waking vision from the Spirit. And it enlivens me to have this conversation with Jesus. And though I didn't see Jesus face to face, He surprised me. And hear this, I think that it was less about Him showing up and more about me finally sitting down. We talk about this a lot in our church. One of our core practices is to create space. I believe that the disciples were able to be surprised by Jesus because fear had gotten to them to a place where they had to sit down, huddle up with others, and simply wait. For three years, presumably, these disciples had been running and gunning with Jesus. But the week after Jesus was killed, they were fearful that they were going to be killed next. And it was that struggle that I believe God used to get them into a place where they had to look anywhere but their own two hands. And then Jesus shows them his. They're in this locked room. Jesus shows up and he initiates with them. He says, look! And even before that, he says, peace be with you, which is the Middle Eastern version of saying, what's up, guys? Although every disciple is doing this, okay, okay, how do you get in? Somebody tear down the roof again? We did that. Bible joke, with me? I'm just seeing if we're awake. He shows up. And I think that John wants us to see that and stay awake to it for two reasons. The first reason is that this is still a body. He's not some spirit because it can be touched and he's going to eat with them in the next chapter. But this body is different. How many of you can walk through a locked door? Everyone keep tabs. We're going to send this person to uh, somewhere they can get some help. Will. This body is different. But look what else about this body. This body is still marked by the cross. Isn't this incredible? In our Good Friday service that we had jointly with Freeman Heights, one of the things that was said at least twice was that it's not just that the tomb is empty, the cross is empty. We Protestants love an empty cross. Yesterday, I went to Good Shepherd Catholic Church just down the road. Because I've confessed a time or two that even though I'm a pastor, I need help sitting down, right? I'm on the move. I want to do this. 
I need help sitting down. So a lot of times in between meetings or running around, I'll duck into a Catholic church to just sit down because it's quieter than my phone in my house. And I'm looking up at the crucifix because in every Catholic church, Jesus is on the cross. And I'm looking at good shepherds and it's backlit. And if you look far enough away, you could almost tell that like that. I'm sure that's a person on that cross. And it's fascinating because it still is difficult for me as a Protestant, a non-Catholic, to imagine Jesus on the cross. But the reality that I think that they understand is this. The cross will always matter. Even after Jesus rose from the dead, even after his body was glorified, he still bears the marks of a God who loves the world enough to be killed rather than to kill. The cross always matters. Decades later, John, the person who wrote this, who wrote some letters that is still talking about, we've seen it, you've got to believe it. We've seen it, you've got to believe it. The John that was in this room gets a vision and writes this wild book called Revelation. And when he sees Jesus in his glorified state on a throne, he says, you know what he looks like? Y'all know what he looks like? A lamb who was slain. The living God is a God who was killed. The cross still matters. And it changed these disciples' lives. They were surprised in the midst of their fear. The second thing we're talking about, it kind of bleeds together. I'm going to spend more time at the very bitter end talking about how Jesus sends us in his spirit. Jesus then is going to breathe over these disciples the Holy Spirit that he had promised to them days before when they were having their last meal. And it's kind of difficult if you're a Bible reader because some of you might be thinking, what about in Acts chapter 2? Have y'all heard of Pentecost? Man, this is like Bible big time tonight. But y'all hang with me. Pentecost, y'all remember Pentecost? The Holy Spirit becomes resident. And they're speaking in tongues. And 2,000 people poof, are adopted because they believe the words Peter preaches. But in John, the disciples received the Holy Spirit then. What do we do with that? I'm not sure, but I'll tell you, I bet a lot of wild stuff happened between the time Jesus showed up in a locked door and 40 days later he ascends and goes at Pentecost. I believe that when John records that Jesus breathed his peace and said, receive the Holy Spirit, they received the Holy Spirit. Because for John, this is the culmination of Jesus saying, guess what? When I go, I'm going to send you with the Spirit. John chapter 16. And then he says, when I go, you're going to be comforted and he's going to reveal to you and empower you. We'll come back to that. What I want you to know now is that they had a wild Sunday night on that first Easter. Jesus showed up somehow, presumably he left, and they're scratching their heads going, we just saw Jesus. Mary was right. And then they go and tell Thomas, Thomas, thanks for going to get the pizza, dude, but you missed something big. And Thomas said in verses 24 to 25, what did he say? Uh, no. 
He said, unless I see the nail marks, put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not, what? Believe. Now I want to take a pause here and say, are you currently in a Thomas state of mind? Let me clarify that. Do y'all believe that Thomas loved Jesus and followed Jesus and kicked it with Jesus and learned how to live like Jesus? Yes. Thomas was a follower and a disciple of Jesus. But he had a bad week. Because he had seen Jesus die. He had seen his hopes die. And I believe, I'm kind of assuming here, based on what we have recorded, that he had entered into a kind of cold war with Jesus. Where he was in this state that says, no, no, no. Unless I see and fill in the blank, or unless he fill in the blank, I'm not going to give myself fully to him. Are you in a Thomas state of mind? I have been in a Thomas state of mind. When I was helping doing some 12-step recovery, I realized, whoa, dude, I need some 12-step recovery. And I'll never forget the very first lesson. I sat down, and the question says, fill in the blanks. If this, then I will give myself fully to Jesus. And I was like, Psh, I'm a Christian dog. I don't need this. And then I realized, oh my goodness. And the dam burst and I was filling in blank after blank after blank because I was in this position where I was expecting Jesus to do it for me and I didn't need to do anything with him in his power. And it reminds me that we can all slip into this Thomas state of mind unless I or unless he. And here's a dangerous place to be because we can elevate our conditions over a relationship that requires this nurturing and sitting down and showing up and learning and evolving. We can elevate the conditions over the relationship. How many of your friendships and marriages thrive when there are ultimatums every day? Maybe you're not in a Thomas state of mind now. But if you are, I'd say just let him surprise you. You can't manufacture it and maybe that's why you're not receiving it. I wish I could give you some formula. I can't. But I do believe if you wait and sit long enough, he will surprise you just like these disciples who are afraid and worried. Now, how many of us are walking with our own Thomases where maybe they're not a disciple, they're not a Christian, and they've got some obstacle that says, yeah, if I, or unless he, then I might consider what? Coming to your neighborhood group, coming to church, coming to Jesus, just being nice to you because you're the weirdo in the family that loves Jesus. Do you have a Thomas that you're walking with? If you do, would you write it, that name somewhere tonight? Because I think we all have this mission, like the disciples, to encounter Thomas and tell them a little bit about what we've seen and what Jesus has done. It's not up to us to force them like my buddy at Witch Witch, but it is up to us to, I think, do these things. How do we walk with the Thomas? This is what I've learned since my Witch Witch, Glory Hallelujah, Billy Graham evangelism crusade. 
How do we stay engaged with the Thomases in our life like these disciples who were sent and surprised? I think the first thing is you love them no matter what. I have a brother who does not know Jesus. And my parents do. And they were heartbroken by it. And I said, you know what? Does this change your love for him? They said, no. Just makes me want to lean in more. Love them no matter what. The second thing I think to do is listen. And this is so big for me because I think we need to listen instead of making assumptions. I know in this church, in our history, we've had some people that were very much invested that got very much divested in the, in the years and years ago. And we made a lot of assumptions about why. Because we didn't know and we loved these people, but we made a lot of assumptions I think we need to listen first. I love uh, a friend of mine and John's in Ecclesia. His name is Bob Hyatt. He wrote a book or co-wrote a book called Ministry Mantras, like these little statements that are sticky that you can remember. And one of them that are my favorite, he says, don't assume, ask. And I think this is just a great relational principle, especially when you're walking with Thomases. Don't assume you know. Ask. Because then that at least opens up a two-way conversation. But you shouldn't just have the two-way conversation with your Thomas. You should also have a two-way conversation with the risen Savior who wants to show up and surprise them. And that's this piece, pray. If I were to raise my hand earlier when I asked you something you're thankful for or God has surprised you about, when we went through this hallway and had all those people going through the stations of the cross, I was stuck on the Mary station. When I see Robin again... I'm going to tell her that Mary sculpture blew my mind. It was an unfinished sculpture. Did y'all notice that? In the Jesus story, traditionally, you see that Mary is on the road that Jesus is taking to the cross, and he locks eyes with her, but she can't reach out to him. He can't reach out to her. He speaks to her, but there's this disconnect. And in the stations, Kathy and Robin put together this prayer guide that talked about how think of someone in your family, in your circle that is disconnected. And I thought of a Thomas on my wife's side of the family. And I was praying for this person in that moment. And then I go home and I eat Chick-fil-A and whatever, go to bed, don't think about it. The next morning, Amy comes to me and said, weirdest thing, I was praying for this person that I had just prayed for in that station. I said, oh yeah, for real? I just did that. That sculpture was awesome. And we're kind of having this conversation. Within hours, was it hours? She gets a text from this person. Last time she got a text from this person, a long time. Months? Year. Gets a text from this person. Is Adam and Amy awesome? No. I think Adam and Amy did the low-hanging fruit of responding to a God who wants to move and work in you if we would stay awake to it. Sometimes it takes sitting down. I don't know this for certain, but I'm becoming more and more convinced of these two things. The first is this. God is not coercive, but he is persuasive. God is moving and at work in the Thomases that you love and long for. He is at work and he is all around them. He loves them. He has one disposition to them and that is not hatred. That is love. And if you think that God hates sinners, you're wrong. 
in Romans, he says, God loved us so much that even when we were sinners and rebels in all kinds of stanky away, Christ still died for us. And God, who is rich in mercy in Ephesians 2, with the great love that he loved for us, even when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive. God's one disposition is love, but he is not coercive. He will not force anyone. This is what I'm pretty sure of. But he is persuasive. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to use us. This is the second thing I'm pretty sure of. Prayer opens doors for the kingdom to come. When Jesus shows up in a locked room, I don't think he took the first SpaceX flight from heaven down to that room. And that's why it took him like till the end of Easter day. I think that heaven and earth are these interlocking, overlapping spaces. We pray this when we pray the kingdom come. N.T. Wright talks about this in our Lenten reading, how there's overlapping and we pray, God, let your kingdom come and invade right here on earth right now. And I think when we pray, we start to wear on that tension, wear on that bed sheet that is separating what we cannot see And when we pray, we're wearing down that tension. And all of a sudden, heaven and earth, the veil between it starts to get really thin. And then God shows up and surprises us. Just like he has you. Just like he did this past week. Because I believe that prayer opens the doors that God has been wanting to open. And he's been knocking. And we partner with him to open it up. I shared this in our neighborhood group, and I, I, I didn't think I was going to spend this much time on this, but I want to I finish this out. I think I've shared this before, but I imagine like surfers on a wave. Another shout out to John Nichols in San Diego. And so I'm told because I live in Texas, but the surfers are waiting on their surfboards for the right wave to come. And when the wave comes, they hop up and they surf it. They don't generate the wave. They hop up and respond to the wave. I think sometimes prayer is like that. There's a nudge. There's something. Will you pay attention? That's what it looks like in part to be sent by the Spirit. The disciples are sharing with Thomas what they've seen. And I believe they were praying that week. And then Jesus surprises our friend Thomas. Let's go back to our story in Thomas. Because your job is not to make your Thomas believe. Your job is to create enough space for that relationship here and to let the relationship with God invade that space because he wants them more than you do. He wants them to know life even more than you do? Would you partner with him in his spirit to create that space and to keep that channel open? I hope you're going to write down a name. And I hope you're going to join me in praying because let me tell you, I might have prayed for him that Wednesday. I hadn't prayed for him in a long time before that. And I think I need to. Would you join me? As we begin to run down the end of this story, Fast forward one week later to the very next Sunday, right? This is Easter Sunday. This would be tomorrow night in our calendars. Thomas has already got the pizza. He's back in the locked room and he's saying, what's the big deal, y'all? And they're probably going, dude, we were right here. And then Jesus showed up and he said, peace be with you. And then they're talking and then boom, Jesus shows up and says the same thing, peace be with you. 
Only this time, Thomas is there. And they're still saying, he did it again. The doors are locked. I told you he would. Did y'all read that? I'm just making sure that we're still okay and awake. And I'm hot in this sweater, so I'm trying to move us along. Jesus shows up again, and I love, love, love this. Earlier, Jesus initiated and said, see this, look at this, look at that. I believe in my mind's eye when I'm reading this story. Can you see it? Jesus shows up, they're freaking out, but now they're laughing and going, dude, dude, look. And he singles out Thomas and goes right to him. And either Jesus heard or they told him in prayer, this is what Thomas said, Jesus, keep an eye out. And Jesus goes and addresses the very obstacles and doubts and the things that Thomas needs. Do you know that he knows what you need? Do you know that he understands the roadblocks and the sin and the struggle and the hurt and the hangups and the habits that are impeding you from life in him? And he wants to meet you and surprise you and tear them down so that you would finally believe that life is in him. And not all these other things you try to attach yourself to. Unless this. If he would just that. If I could just finally this. No, no, no. He's going to tear it down, meet you there. And he's also going to say this. Stop doubting and believe. When we read that earlier, in your mind's eye, how did you imagine Jesus saying those words? Did he say it with a smile? Because I believe his motivation was the deepest love mixed with the deepest seriousness because he knows what's at stake for Thomas. It's life or it's not. But he meets him exactly where he is. He meets him there. And we remember some of us the famous painting. And I didn't show it on the screen because I didn't want it to color our imaginations too much. But there's this famous painting where Jesus is holding open this robe. And there's this spear wound from when the guards stabbed him on the cross to make sure he was really dead. And that's significant. And in the painting, you've got Thomas playing operation on the risen Jesus. What? I'm not sure Thomas had to touch. The next words we read in John is Thomas saying to Jesus, My Lord and my God beginning of this message we read John chapter 1 where John the beloved disciple who was in that room lays all his cards out and he says you've never seen God we did in Jesus the word was with God the word was God he's made God known God looks like Jesus God 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 Jesus 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 and for 19 chapters not one person Jesus speaks to ever calls him God except doubting Thomas And so when we're talking about Jesus surprising us and Jesus sending us, know that even the greatest skeptic can make the greatest confession and see Jesus for who he is. 
And as we walk with our Thomases, and as we walk through our own seasons of Thomas-like doubt, know that one day, if we would really see him for who he is, we just might believe and find life. As we close, I want to tie off some of maybe your unanswered questions. Because these same doubters and fearful disciples are empowered with the Holy Spirit and sent out to go tell more doubters and people that Easter really did matter and change everything. And Jesus says this strange and cryptic thing about the sins, right? Anybody's sins you forgive are forgiven. Anybody's who's not are not. And that sounds strange to us because you think Jesus would say like, go and do awesome stuff. And he says this strange thing in John. But I think that John knows what he's doing. Because we read in John 16, 7-3, that when the Spirit comes for the disciples, the Spirit of God is going to convict the world about sin and righteousness. And what he means is this. When we go in the Spirit, we go with good news, but it's also a word that says you've got to make sense of whether or not Jesus is who he says he is or not. And the disciples are charged and tasked with carrying on Jesus' own mission that looks like seeing and finding life or sinning and finding death. And for better or for worse, he has left this mission with these Easter people who have seen and believed and find life. N.T. Wright said this when we're thinking about him sending or not. He says, the truth of Easter is not just that Jesus himself was raised from the dead by the power of God. The truth of Easter is that that same power is now unleashed into the lives of all who believe in Jesus. All who follow him so that he can continue his work through them. Who's the them that he worked through? Look with me. In John chapter 20, he made three appearances. We looked at one last week, two tonight. Jesus surprises Mary in her grief and sends her in joy to tell the disciples what she's seen. Then Jesus surprises the disciples in their fear. And then it says they were overjoyed when they realized Jesus was alive. So they sent out in joy. And then Jesus surprises Thomas in his doubt And sends him out believing. Jesus sends us. And so I'll leave you with this. I hope you enjoyed the Lenten Bible reading. The Lenten devotionals written by N.T. Wright. This was from today's reading. The scripture that we read was how we ended our Easter and Lent journey. And this is the very last page of our devotional. So if you didn't read it today, that's all right. I read the scripture, and I'm about to read this devotional. And I want you to let these words enliven you, awaken you, because Jesus has surprised you, and he's sending you. Let's listen. We go out then as Easter people with the message both of forgiveness and warning of faith that confronts and conquers doubt, and of hope 
that overcomes fear. We go out, in fact, as people of new creation. John emphasizes in verse 19, as he had done in the first verse of the chapter, that this was the first day of the week. It was the beginning of God's new world. We new creation people are to fill our lungs with Jesus' powerful breath, to fill our minds with the truth of his resurrection, to fill our hearts with love for him and his world, and to go out not knowing where we shall go or what we shall do, but only that a new day has begun which will never end. We are to remind ourselves Again and again, that the love which was shown on the cross, revealed once more here in the mark of the nails, verse 20, is the same powerful love that will carry us forward through all the suffering and sorrow that we too will meet to the point where not only we, but a great company that nobody could count will say, my Lord And my God. There are, as John says, many other things that he could have written in this book. But this is enough. Enough for us and for the world to believe, to find life. Easter life. Here and now. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the death our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.